I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome back to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. I'm your host, Dan, and uh, we're welcoming to the show here today uh, a guest who is taking part in this special series we have on National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month uh, in January, of course. That's what this is. You've heard a couple of episodes, hopefully. Uh, And today we're going back to the, we had local last week. Today we're going back to global, really, not just national, but global. uh, Richard Schoberl. Can I call you Rich? Rich? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Rich Schoberl is is with me, and he is with a, a, an organization called Hope for Justice. And Rich, you are the U.S. Investigations Team Leader, I understand. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. But first, let's get to what is Hope for Justice, and what do you all do when it comes to this human trafficking awareness and prevention? Okay, so uh, you know, I appreciate you having me on your your show today, and. And highlighting this this area of human trafficking, it is um, obviously just like COVID nineteen, a pandemic in its own right. Um, as we're seeing the numbers actually grow and go up uh, during COVID nineteen during this time of isolation, but we can talk about that here uh, in a little bit. But what Hope for Justice is is an international nonprofit that uh, basically works from a, a mission of prevention rescue, restore, and reform. Uh, we are located on four continents, uh, multiple multiple offices across the globe. Um, in the United States, we have offices in uh, Nashville, North Carolina, Florida, Colorado, um, Iowa, um, and we are expanding uh, drastically here in the U.S. Over the course of the next three years, we will be opening up additional offices from a prevention standpoint, what we hope to do is to uh, is to raise awareness, education. We know that education on human trafficking raises awareness. We develop uh, preventative programming as far as uh, awareness training that we cater per industry. For example, if we go to a hospital or clinician setting, we know that in upwards of 50% of human trafficking victims go into a hospital or clinician setting and they're unrecognized uh, because the, the, the clinician's probably haven't been trained in human trafficking recognition. So we cater our training to the specific industry. So when we look at from a preventative nature, that's how we look, we look to do that. Uh, we also look to, um, from a preventative nature, it kind of ties into what we call rescuing. Uh, we prevention, rescue, restore, reform from the rescue standpoint. Um, we go out and we look for individuals who are vulnerable to being trafficked. Um, that kind of ties in the two prevention and rescue, for example. We know that uh, a third of runaways are at risk of being trafficked. 
And who are we to say you're not going to be that one in three? So we know that when a, a, um, a vulnerable youth runs away from home, that there is a high probability because of their vulnerability, they resort to what we call survival sex on the street. They've got no clothes, they've got no shelter, they've got no money. So <clears throat> then they become, uh, you know, part of a person who's targeted them's property. They get them addicted to drugs, and then it's just a downward spiral from there. So we go out to look for those, and we also build cases against human traffickers. Uh, our team of investigators are licensed private investigators. They're all retired former law enforcement. So they work hand in hand with law enforcement uh, to go out and investigate these cases and then present the cases to uh, prosecutor's office or to, or to law enforcement. And it's not just um, building cases against current traffickers. They'll also build investigations um, that are retroactive in the past because, you know, we feel like these victims deserve justice, even though they may be safe right now. They, they deserve justice. And we know that the trafficker is probably going to go out and do it again, uh, high, highly likely. And then um, uh, restore is part of our restoration process. You know, these, these young victims are old victims. However, the youngest we've rescued was under a year old. The oldest we've rescued is, was over 87. And <clears throat> so we know that, uh, that these victims have covered the whole spectrum of trauma from alcohol abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, drug abuse, you know, that's a traumatic spectrum to cover for, for an individual. So we try to give them at best their lives back. For example, you know, we, we rescued a lady who was, uh, came to the United States, uh, um, you know, 37 years ago to be a nanny and ended up becoming a domestic slave. And we rescued her from the position that she was in. And, you know, she was held, uh, you know, she was 87 when we rescued her, 37 years. How, how do you give somebody's life back to them who've, who's basically been held in captivity for 37 years? It's pretty difficult to do. But we try our best to restore the lives of these uh, uh, victims through educational program, uh, counseling, trauma-based care. And that's what we look to do when we do that. And then reform. Uh, reforming is one of the key avenues that we look at is changing the laws uh, when we look at trafficking, you know, changing the laws to, to make it a deterrent, a uh, higher penalty for these individuals who are going out and selling these, these individuals. I was worked with the FBI's counterterrorism unit prior life before um, leaving the government and, and uh, doing this. And, you know, it, uh, I thought a terrorist was, uh, you know, probably the worst person I'd ever met in my life until I met a trafficker. And then I realized this, this has got to be the worst human being that, that there is somebody who would exploit the vulnerabilities of someone else for their own personal benefit that it's just, it's, it's almost just hard to even believe that it could be happening. You know, we abolished slavery 150 years ago, but yet that's what this is. It's a form of modern day slavery. Yeah. So I'm, I'm keep taking notes on everything you say. There's so much to, to get into here. Um, what, so you, you said something that triggered in my mind, um, a statute of limitations. When you say that you know, these victims, these survivors deserve justice, 100%. How do you, how do we do that as a society? How can we support them? Is there a statute of limitations on these traffickers? Like if, if I know that I survived it, but it was several years ago, I might be feeling, oh, it's, it's over. I'm safe. It's fine. But, but how, what do we do about that? 
Now, uh, when we look at it from a federal standpoint, obviously each state has a different law, but from a federal standpoint, no, um, they do deserve justice and these cases can be made. And, and, uh, and I'll give you a, a, an example. Um, <clears throat> a young lady uh, had called into our, our call center and had said that she was being trafficked by her husband and she ran away. And so we, uh, she, the story that she had told us was pretty, pretty elaborate to the fact that it, you, you kind of guessed, uh, wanted to guess whether it was believable or not believable, but we treat every one of them as believable until we prove otherwise. And after interviewing her, um, we did some uh, background on, on, the, uh, on the husband and found out that he had been married twice before. We located the other previous two wives and um, one of them had ran away 18 years ago uh, from him. Um, and all three of these women told us a carbon copy of the same story of that he would, uh, he, he addicted them to alcohol and drugs. He would videotape them having sex and would charge men. And he would then post these videos online and would forcibly, uh, you know, make them do uh, these type of actions with other men. And, you know, that's trafficking clearly. And um, so we worked this investigation. We turned it over to law enforcement. The individual was charged with 72 counts of human trafficking. Uh, about four months after the case, we had got a letter in our office and the first wife had sent us a letter and she basically said to sum it up, I want to thank you for believing us. No one would ever believe us that this happened. And she said, after 18 years, I feel like I finally got justice and literally almost brought a tear to my eyes thinking about it because this woman has been harboring this trauma for, for over 18 years because she thought this guy was untouchable. Nothing would ever happen to him. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, we'll go back and, and, and look at cases like that. One of the, the hardest things about human trafficking investigations is they're so labor intensive that law enforcement just doesn't have the resources sometimes to, to apply to these cases because they do require a great deal of surveillance. They do require, require a great deal of tech savvy, and, and they do require a lot of investigation in order to make the case. And they simply just don't have the manpower to do it all the, all the time. Yeah. Um, Another thing you talked about uh, the woman who was a nanny that came over, came over to be a nanny or came to America to be a nanny. How, so I, I, gosh, I never would have necessarily thought of this in my sheltered life. You, you, you go become a nanny. You expect to be paid for that. That isn't just like you can live with us and do this thing. And then you can go home occasionally. Like, but that really happens still in 2021, does it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, domestic servitude is one of the uh, number one labor trafficking uh, violations that's out there. But and you have to think about this, how hard it is to detect that. I mean, we can't just walk door to door and say, hey, excuse me, do you have an undocumented immigrant living here who you're not paying and forcing to stay here because you've took away their passport? Oh, yeah, sure. They're down here. No, yeah. they're very difficult. <clears throat> So the only way that that law enforcement or we uh, find out about this is, is is a tip. And I can tell you how this this particular case is, is very unique in the fact that uh, um, like why I said we provide training um, and it's specific to that industry. And this is a prime example. Um, this individual ended up going to uh, a hospital setting, clinician setting. She had fainted 
Um, she was malnourished. She was only given the scraps left over from dinner to eat. She's forced to sleep in the basement on the floor. And so um, <clears throat> when she went to the hospital for fainting, the, the nurse, um, for, and she didn't speak English, by the way, um, the nurse actually spoke her native language and um, started talking to her in her native language and then separated her from uh, the trafficker uh, who was holding her in domestic servitude because she legitimately did come over to be a nanny um, and, and help raise these, these two kids. But those two kids uh, had, had grown up and left the house but they maintained her there and told her to stay and told her that if she would leave, she would be arrested for violation of immigration laws. And so she didn't know any better. I mean, imagine being a domestic slave for 37 years. It's a long time. So she gets to the hospital. The nurse recognizes this. The nurse had received our type of training and uh, calls us and says, hey, listen, I've got a person here who I think is a victim of human trafficking. This is what she's told me. And she tells us the whole story. And I'm like, yes, she is a victim of human trafficking. Let's interview her. So we FaceTimed. She interpreted for us. We interviewed her. Uh, and then we put together the investigation. We turned it over to federal law enforcement. They went out, made the arrest, rescued her. But, you know, I always tell people, they're like, oh, it's so great. She's safe now. And I'm like, yeah, she's 87. Uh, so, you know, how do you, how do you say, Hey, I'm sorry. What happened to you? Here's, here's 37 years of your life back. Th those are just sad, sad, sad scenarios. And uh, you know, that th that's why you do what you do because there are cases like out like that, that are out there that exist. You yeah. Know? And, and on that, thank you for doing what you do. Everyone that mm -hmm. hope for justice makes you feel like evil is in the world, but there are those who are combating it. So, um, yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. It, you know, we have this news coverage recently in, in recent years uh, that we've been able to, to bring this to light. Finally, we have organizations like yours. Uh, but this, I mean, she was a domestic servant, a slave for 37 years. This mm -hmm. is not new. I mean, obviously slavery is not new at all. Um but this human trafficking idea, this is not new. What, what do you think it is that in the last few years has gotten at more coverage? Well, I think you're starting to see a society that um, is saying enough is enough. You're, you're, you're starting to see a bunch of, of um, abolitionists come out and say, this is not acceptable. Okay. And, you know, <clears throat> what what drew me to this is is um, I'm a you know after my life with with the FBI I, I became a college professor and um, I teach college and I was going through Indeed uh, looking for jobs for students and I see this hope for justice and I go what is this hope for justice thing so I look at it and I call them call the, the Nashville office. And lo and behold, the guy who works there is actually a retired FBI agent. He and I knew some of the same people. I go talk to him. I bring uh, home their uh, year in review, which happens to have a picture of a 12-year-old girl on the front cover who was an actual victim that we rescued. And I look at it and I put it on a coffee table, read it. And then the next day, my 12-year-old daughter comes bebopping down the stairs. And she picks up the book, she looks at it, and she looks over at me and she says, is this something you're thinking about doing? And I said, yeah, I'm thinking about doing it. And uh, she says, well, I'm very proud of you. 
and she kisses me on the cheek, leaves the room. My wife leans over from the kitchen and says, I don't guess you're thinking about doing it anymore, are you? And I said, no, I'm not. Uh, but every time I tell that story, it kind of chokes me up a little bit because, you know, I think about those victims. They are somebody's kid. They are somebody's daughter. They are somebody's mother, somebody's brother, somebody's son. They're not nobodies. They have names and, and <clears throat> they're people who don't deserve to be in this position, regardless of how they got there, okay? Whether it's drug addiction, whether it's abusive home, abusive relationship, whatever variable or variables that put them into this position, they don't deserve to be treated like this. So we as a society have to recognize that this is unacceptable and we have to do something about it. We've always had this taboo about talking about sex crimes and this and that. We bury our head in the sand and say, it's not happening in my neighborhood. Baloney is happening in your neighborhood. It's happening in everybody's neighborhood. No, nobody lives in a utopia where crime doesn't exist. Human traffickers don't take a holiday and they don't take a vacation. It's a $150 billion a year business for a reason. Because I can only sell that drug once, but I can sell that girl over and over and over again. It's a business, okay? And when you talk about that type of money, you can see how this evil can just emerge. And, you know, thank goodness we're getting more people aware of what's happening out there. Because this is just, you know, it, it, you know, a lot of people, are, they think it's like Liam Nielsen kicking in the door and, <clears throat> you know, and the girls get, does that type of trafficking happen? Sure. But that, that's the rarity, okay? That's the rarity. You know, most victims don't ever leave the state. They, they may never even leave that city. Okay. They're addicted to, to, to drugs um, because that's a means of control for the pimp. Uh, and, and then they're prostituted out. And, you know, no one's ever raised their hand that I know of and have said, hey, we traffic me. No, it doesn't happen. Nobody's doing this willingly. Um, yeah, I, I have daughters. So that story, man. Talk about it's kind of choking you up. I had, I had tears. Um, when you talk about prostituting them out, I mean, you, you described a situation earlier where the husband was also filming and using it for just uh, to, to, to show other men though they would buy it. I mean, that's pornography. How how big of a of a factor is the porn the pornography industry in all of this too? I mean, is all is all of this tied together in some way? Like. Well, I, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not going to sit here and say that every uh, piece of pornography is a trafficking victim because that would be that would be false for me to say that. But I will tell you that during this this time of COVID-19, um, there's a new emerging danger uh, that uh, we like to to, I guess, coin as online grooming. And it, it, it's not as complex as I'm going to make it sound, but um <clears throat> Now, during COVID-19, we're seeing more and more teenagers uh, being online as if they could be online any more than they already are. Right. right. So, you know, <clears throat> they're all online and um, their parents, most of them are home online, too, because they have jobs and they are not able to supervise their children because they're doing their own job 
Whereas when the kids are at school, they could be supervised by educators while they're doing this. So the kids are spending more and more time online. You see the traffickers are aware of that. They don't have to go out and cruise the streets looking for these kids anymore. They can get online. And I, when I interviewed this one trafficker, he told me, he says, you know, I'll start talking to over a hundred girls at a time online, cutting and pasting my same conversation with each one. And he goes, it's a game of statistics because I know one of those girls is going to respond to me. Then what he does is he'll start talking to this girl, um, whether it's sharing a commonality with them, whether it's sharing the fact that, you know, oh, you know, I hate being at home too. You know, obviously he's not sitting there in the chat telling them he's a human trafficker. He's basically trying to, to uh, communicate with them as if he were on their level. He's a teenage boy too, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then the illicit exchange of photos come. And then the blackmailing comes. Um, I'm going to send these pictures to your parents. I'm going to send these pictures to the web. I'm going to send them to your school, to your friends, unless you do this for me. And then they will start having these girls do live sex shows on webcams that they are then selling access to to other men out there on the Internet. Mm. How scary is that? Yeah. I mean, this opens up a whole nother Pandora's box when we talk about trafficking. It, it's it's really scary when when we think how sophisticated that these traffickers have become. Uh, you know, you've got your low level trafficker who's just a drug dealer who's just pimping out somebody for cash here and there, and then you've got the sophistication of some that are doing this online. Um, wow, how do you police that? How do you police that? That's just oh. Uh, and and I mean, I guess the, that's the next question: is How do you police it? I mean, at home we can. I would think this is what we've done anyway, is talk about it at home. We talked to both our daughters. If you ever get these kind of messages, this kind of like, we, you know, don't do it. If you do it, still come to us. We'll work like making sure that we're being open, <clears throat> we're educating, but then what do we do as a community, as a country, as just like, like, what do we do? Well, I think, I think, I think you're doing the right thing. That's the first start is educating our kids. Okay, educating our kids what's acceptable, what's not acceptable behavior, what to look out for, what are some of the red flags, but also educating our, the parents too. You know, let's talk about educating the parents on, you know, what to look for, you know, what to look for on your child's phone for, you know, what type of apps to look for, you know, uh, internet history, you know, just mo being a parent really and monitoring what's going on in your child's life and being a part. Uh, you know, of, of that life. It's, that's very, very important uh, to, to, to look for those signs uh, that we, that we need to look for. And, you know, let's take it to our school systems, you know, and I, I thought it was almost, uh, I won't say it was comical because it's not comical. Um, I, I guess the word I'm looking for is, is, is mm, defeated in the fact that like how we're educating our kids at school with human trafficking, um, human trafficking awareness, my daughter gets the training when she's a senior in high school. She'll be 18. Okay. That's about five, six years too late. Okay. Um, we need to be talking about it and not, if, if we can talk about sex education in, in junior high, then we certainly can talk about human trafficking awareness yeah. in junior high. Okay. What to look for, what to look for in your peers talking, you know, teens teaching teens, you know, that's an important program. And, and we try to do that. We develop a teens teaching teens program where we actually have teen volunteers that go out and, and train other teens at, at uh, 
you know, church groups and, uh, you know, school systems and things like that. And then we also do online exploitation. We talk, uh, you know, talk to parents and students alike on, on what to look for and, and how to avoid the, this, this slippery slope or this trap that's out there online. Yeah. I mean, it really should start when the kids get phones. Like that phone is a, a, a portal to the world and there's some great stuff in the world, but there's some bad stuff. You know, I always tell you're right. You're right. And I always tell parents, you know, I'll sit there and talk to them. I'm like, Hey, listen. Um, so if you were in your house and your kid was out front playing and somebody pulls up, would it be okay for them to go up to that car window and talk to them? And they're like, no, you gotta be crazy. They don't know who they are. I said, then why would you let them talk to that car window? That's in their computer screen. Right. Cause you don't know who they're talking to. Right. Yeah. yeah. You don't, you have no clue. And I'll tell you one of the scariest things. And I really was not looking for, for, uh, this, uh, affirmative of an answer, but I remember I was speaking at a, at a high school outside of Washington, DC, and there must've been 1200 kids in there. And I asked a survey question. I said, how many of you have ever met, uh, talked to somebody online that you didn't know about half the room raised their hand. I'm like, okay, how many of you ever met somebody that you met online that you didn't know? And only half of the half dropped their hands. And I was flabbergasted. I'm like, hold on a minute. So about 300 of you have actually went to meet somebody that you didn't know before that you met online. I'm like, that's almost scary. I mean, the, the, like you said before, the internet's great. It's given us a lot of awesome things, but it's also given us a lot of bad things too. You know, yeah. like any, like anything, what goes on monitored, um, you know, has the potential to, to do danger. Yep. So, so Rich, on, on the education side of things, you, when you were talking earlier about training and, and trafficking recognition, whether that's, you know, doctors or nurses, PAs, uh, whether that's, you know, parents, what are a couple of things we can look for to recognize someone may be a victim of human trafficking? You know, uh, the variables and the red flags, um, are, you know, differ. Uh, with, uh, you know, different age groups. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about young kids, obviously we, we want to look particularly for their changes in behavior. Um, uh, most certainly withdrawn, um, uh, isolation, depression, um, change in friends groups, starting to hang out with older people. Um, lavish gifts that can't be explained. You know, you start looking at things like that. I mean, it's just being uh, acute to, to your, your kids and your surroundings as to, as to what's going on, you know. And <clears throat> when we go to, to do some of the training, like, for example, um, you know, clinician training, we, we, we've developed a platform uh, of training that we deliver on behalf of the Department of State that we deliver to all clinicians abroad at all of the embassies for, for the Department of State because what they see is totally different than what a teller might see, you know, at a bank um, or what a, you know, a person working at a grocery store might see. And I think you have to look for those type of physical signs, uh, you know, as you would, and, you know, when you, when you talk about sexual abuse and you talk about domestic violence, it, you know, you're almost, you're almost looking for the same signs that you would be because these women are being sexually abused. They are being domestically abused per se. You know, they're, they are being beaten and controlled. 
you know, and just listening to some of the horror stories. So, yeah. And in particular, young kids, too, who's, who may have a change in dress. They're starting to dress more provocative in nature. You know, when you see a kid 13 and you're like, the 13-year-old should not be wearing that. You know, that's a clue, too. But you also have to think about this as well. You know, it's like a chocolate cake. <clears throat> you know, your eggs aren't going to make the cake. Cocoa ain't going to make the cake. Flour ain't going to make the cake. Sugar's not going to make the cake. When you start adding all these variables up, you got a cake. Okay. So same thing with human trafficking. We start looking at that, you know, the, the red flags and what, and what to look for, um, you know, unexplained behavior, you know, particularly with your, uh, when your kid starts hiding um, stuff on their phone, changing their password on their phone, clearing their internet history on their phone, burying their apps inside of other uh, apps or hiding apps on there. then that's of concern. Okay. Whether it's human trafficking or not, it's still of concern dig a little deeper as the parent, uh, start looking into it. And, you know, <clears throat> it, it's important for us to catch it before it gets out of hand. Yeah. If, if we do as community members, if we do think we start seeing some red flags with someone, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone we saw in a store, maybe, you know, at a, at a, at a restaurant or something like I've heard stories about someone on an airplane, you know, that like, I, I don't, I think that's not right there. They shouldn't be with that person. What, what do we do? If we see something in our, in our community, you know, I always tell people that if you feel like someone is in imminent danger right then, if, if you were to see, and I'll give you a scenario, if you were to see a guy manhandling a, a girl and put and put her in the back of the car, uh, you know, in the backseat of the car, just kind of pushed her in there, manhandling her or whatever, you, you, you should call 911, obviously. Make sure that you get the make model of the car and the license plate if you can without endangering yourself, uh, you know, because that's a that's a, a big thing for law enforcement. But also, too, we get a lot of people that send us emails through our uh, our email address um, that's on hopeforjustice.org. They'll go to the website. They'll send the info and say, hey, I saw this car traveling on this road. Here's a picture of it. There were two girls that were, you know, dressed provocatively in the back. They look like they were underage. You know, can you? Uh, you know, can you rescue them, you know, or can you help us with this? We'll reach back out to that person. I'll interview them, ask them as much information as I can. And I'll also say, Hey, did you contact the law enforcement? And they'll say no. And I'll be like, okay, great. I'm going to take this information that you gave me and let you know, I'm going to pass it on to law enforcement and I'll pass it on to law enforcement, but I'll also work with law enforcement because I want to make sure it doesn't fall through the cracks. And, and we'll work with law enforcement and say, Hey, if, if you guys aren't going to look into this, we'll look into it and give you the information that we've, we've got. We, we often get a lot of uh, referrals from law enforcement who will call us and say, Hey, listen, we don't have time to do this, but we don't want it to fall through the cracks. Could you guys follow up on it for us just to see if there's anything there? Hmm. <clears throat> We're like, yeah, sure. No problem. And we will. And whether it proves out to be negative or not, then, you know, at least we know it, I'd rather follow up on something, spend a week doing it to learn it's not trafficking than to not follow up on it and read it in the paper later that it was trafficking. Yeah, absolutely. To so start yeah. with local police, uh, yeah. you know, hope for justice is there. Yeah. Um, and then, and my hope is anyone listening, let your local law enforcement know that that's a, that that's available. That's an option get in touch with the hope for justice. You know, um, we don't want this to fall through the cracks. We need education. Right. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times law enforcement isn't uh, um, always trained on what to look for. And sometimes we'll discount it as prostitution and, and no fault of their own. I mean, no fault of their own. Um, they may not have had that training available to them. 
and 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 therefore they may not recognize the sign. We often do go out and do uh, training for law enforcement. Last year, we trained over twelve thousand law enforcement officers across country on human trafficking awareness. Um, our our training is post certified, which is you know police officer standard training certified, and we provide it free of charge. So it's not like we go out there and we say hey, this is what Joe us and you know law enforcement have to have these hours every year so they welcome the training and it's good to get it's and it's good to 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 get it you know yeah um so you said earlier uh one of the things is is uh, reform changing laws where does that start how what do we what, what can we do well i tell you it starts with you know local and national and uh, so I'll give you an example. We were part of uh, a movement in uh, Iowa recently that changed the law that requires all hospitality workers to receive human trafficking awareness training. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by the end of this year, every hospitality worker has to have human trafficking training. Okay. Where are these individuals being trafficked? Oh, in hotels and motels. So it would make sense for these people to get to get this type of training. And it's important. So <clears throat> we need to start amping up things like that, like education, requiring this training of people. I'll have to say that, you know, one of we have a great partnership with with Regions Bank, which is a, a large bank. Uh, you know, in, in the South and then uh, through the Midwest and regions bank has uh, trained. We developed a, an online training platform for all of their tellers so that all of their tellers knew what to look for, for a trafficker and a trafficking victim. And, and that's important. But if we could take that training and look at the industries that are most likely to come in contact with these individuals and then make that a law, that would be very, very important. But let's also too make the make the crimes a little bit more punishable. So, for example, <clears throat> um, you know, some of these, a lot of the stings that are being conducted, where men will will um, you know respond to an online ad, they'll go to these online. Uh, ads they'll request to meet this girl who doesn't really exist they'll go to the hotel they'll get arrested they'll they'll charge them with human trafficking but they'll get off with prostitution because they'll plead it out and they'll pay a $2,500 fine and then boom they'll go back to doing the same thing they did before well let's just not make it a $2,500 fine and in a misdemeanor let's put some teeth in it you know um, one of the, I was really astounded by this figure. I was actually at a conference in uh, Washington this past spring before COVID hit. And <clears throat> there was a, and it was made up of, it was police executive research forum, which is made up of, of uh, lawmakers. It's made up of academic professionals. It's made up of police executives and federal agencies. And at this meeting, one of the professors who was doing some academic research from John Jay, she did an, on, uh, an online survey of a thousand men. And seven out of 10 men said that they would pay for sex if it was legal. Seven out of 10. Eight out of 10 said that they would pay for sex if they wouldn't get caught, if they knew they wouldn't get caught. Wow. And I was just astounded by the figure. I was like, wow. Like I'm looking around the room, counting all the men in there. And I'm like, <laughs> you, you, I'm like, wow, right. this is crazy. You know, <clears throat> one of the initiatives that I do a lot of stuff with NYPD and one of the things that they, they do a deterrent that they do it. And I think it's pretty brilliant is they put a false ad in the paper for uh, escort service, prostitution, 
etc. And um, when people respond to that ad, they'll send them a text message and they'll say, hey, this is NYPD. You could be sitting in a jail cell right now, but we chose to give you this warning. If you're, but now we have your number. If we find out you do this again, it'll be your second offense. Mm. <clears throat> and I'm like, wow, talk about scaring somebody straight. You know, <laughs> yeah. Right. You're, you're sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in town from Ohio and I could have been sitting in jail tonight. Oh, my goodness. You know, if we have more preventative or deterrent programs out there to, to try to change them, change these things. And I do know that uh, we were actually in uh, D.C. this past summer and uh, had worked with Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, his office on a new bill that's there. And it's creating a public private partnership uh, that basically takes members from the community as more of an advisory panel to advise lawmakers of the the issues of human trafficking that's ongoing in their state, but also what's going on on a federal level to help better cater the laws. And one of the best laws that was passed was SESTA last year that now allows the victim to go back and sue the um, platforms that they were advertised on for sex. And, and, and get some monetary, uh, you know, civil benefits from being trafficked on that website or on that social media platform. And I thought that was great. I was like, wow, that's what we need. We need more laws like this, you know. Yeah. Man, a lot there, Rich. I, we, could, we could talk for days, um, but I think, I think we won't. Um, <laughs> thank you again for what you do for our, our fellow human beings. Again, from under one year old to 87 years old, that's such a bright and boys, girls, women, men. I mean, everything out there in the world can are, are potential victims. And so thank you. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Absolutely. So yeah, Rich Schoberl, uh, us investigations team leader at uh, hope for justice, where I love the, I love the mission. The, the, the mission points, prevent, rescue, restore, reform. I think we kind of covered it all. Um, right. Hopeforjustice.org is where to go. Any other resources you want to throw out there for folks listening? Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, uh, Department of Homeland uh, Security has a campaign called the Blue Campaign. They've got a lot of great videos out there that are scenario-based uh, videos that you could share with your kids. I think those are, those are great. Um, they are PG. They cover labor trafficking all the way to, to sex trafficking, to online exploitation. Our website has the same thing. We work with them, Polaris as well. You know, in this in this battle against, uh, you know, human trafficking, I, I think of it as more of a collaborative effort as opposed to a competitive effort. Get with your local NGO that does human trafficking and work with them. Uh, volunteer with them, uh, you know, even a couple hours a week, you know, and, and if you see something, say something, don't, don't say it's not my business. It's this is everybody's business. Make it, make it your business. Absolutely. And, uh, and the last thing, Rich, what, I mean, that's a great piece of advice. What ray of hope can you give listeners? This is a pretty heavy episode, pretty heavy month going on here. Um, Give us something, a piece of hope, I guess. Well, I can, I can tell you this, that, you know, uh, the, from, from a hope for justice, perspective we are expanding globally to 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 combat trafficking by providing more services more investigators but from a human trafficking standpoint you know 
thank goodness this is this is being brought to the forefront. Thank goodness for you and your podcast bringing this uh, this topic some attention that's much deserved so that people will pull their head out of the sand and say hey you know this is happening in my community because it is what do I need to look for what are the signs and then go out there and find an NGO either hope for justice or, or one that's local and support them um, you know through getting educated making yourself aware because the more awareness, the more education we have, the more aware we are, the more aware we are, the more people get rescued. And there are more people getting rescued today because people are becoming aware about it. And, uh, you know, and that's that. And I can, I can just tell you right now, I'll leave you with this quick story of this, uh, this 14 year old girl who was a foster child who uh, ran away from home and um, they reported it to law enforcement uh, law enforcement's pretty busy. They're not going to go after chronic runaways because they know they're just going to run away again. But we know that chronic runaways have a high vulnerability of being trafficked. Um, one of our investigators went out there who was on holiday um, and said, you know, hey, guess what? Um, holiday, you know, traffickers don't take a holiday. So uh, I can't let this little girl be out on the street. And he called and said, hey, this is a situation. We went out there for two days. We found the girl. Uh, thank goodness, um, and and got her brought back safely home. And uh, she was 14. The mother like hugged us and, and was crying, was like, thank you guys so much for doing this. And I'm like, why wouldn't we do this? Like, this is somebody's kid, somebody's baby. And, you know, if we would not have rescued this girl, she was in the home of a person when we found her who was planning on trafficking her. So Ray of Hope is another person saved yep absolutely rich showbarrel thank you so much for being a part of of this conversation and for all you do my friend yep thank you god bless have a great day thank you for listening to i'm not in an abusive relationship if these stories resonate with you and you need help please visit our website d-a-s-a-s-m-i.org that's dasismi.org or call our hotline at 800-828- 2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.